Change. Times are a-changing, and sports is not hard to find leaders who are complaining about all the changes, whether it's the changes in today's youth or the changes in today's sporting environment. Oh, how we all seem to long for the past and seem resistant to the inevitable changes that have come and will continue to come moving forward. How as leaders do we navigate the change while staying true to ourselves, to what's important, what's core to our very being? Well, today we've got the master of change himself, the guru of change, best-selling author Brad Stolberg. Brad's latest book, Master of Change, became an instant national bestseller. All told, his books have sold more than 450,000 copies and have been translated into more than 20 languages. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, where he is a regular contributor to the opinion section, as well as the Wall Street Journal and Time uh, magazine, among many other publications. He regularly speaks to large organizations on topics related to excellence, resilience, performance, and overall well-being. He's also the co-creator of The Growth Equation, which is an online platform dedicated to defining and realizing a more fulfilling, genuine kind of excellence is sustainable success. He's also on faculty at the University of Michigan's Graduate School of Public Health, where he advises and lectures on health, human potential, and excellence. In today's episode, our first episode with Brad, we'll be talking about how core values can help you to navigate the changes in your environment. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast, the podcast to help you grow as a leader and build a better culture. My name is JP Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. Our other co-host, Betsy Butterick, sat this one out. Uh, in addition to this podcast, I am a leadership coach and culture consultant. To learn more about my business, TOC, and how it can support you and your team, visit TOCculture.com. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter uh, there and get the notes to every episode of this podcast also, to learn more about Betsy, who is a leadership coach and communication specialist, go to BetsyButterick.com. All right. Welcome, Brad, to the podcast. We're excited for the conversation today. And, you know, as a writer myself, I get the question of why I wrote the, you know, my most recent book a lot. But I think oftentimes what is most interesting for me as an author is just the evolution of like how a book came to be. And so when you look at your latest book, uh, Master of Change, this bestseller, phenomenal book, really enjoyed it the last a couple months heading into the new year for me was just really, really timely. But yeah, just curious if you could just share with our listeners how the book came to be. I try to write the books that I need to read. So the short answer of that is I was undergoing a whole lot of change in my own life. And uh, this was against the backdrop of the COVID-19 pandemic. So a change that affected pretty much everybody in the, the entire world. Um, and was really wrestling with the question of how come we resist change and then how come after change we default to getting back to where we were and we use language like that what's it going to take to get back to normal or perhaps we compare our current reality with what we thought our reality was going to be or with what our old reality was and i caught myself doing a little bit of this as well and then seeing just endless newspaper articles related to the pandemic about what's it going to take to get back to normal and how long will it take to get back to normal and what will getting back to normal entail. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but something about that just struck me the wrong way. Like there is no getting back to normal. And 
why would we want to get back to someplace that we once were? So that was a big influence on the genesis of the book. And then the other big influence is really an intellectual question that I've been wrestling with for, I don't know, the last 10, 15 years, which is essentially the very empirical reality of impermanence. So everything is always changing all the time. And yet so much of my own temperament and my work with athletes and leaders and entrepreneurs is really about being strong and solid and whole. So what does it mean to be strong, solid, and whole when everything is changing, including you? And how do you reconcile these empirical facts? Good leaders, good coaches are strong and solid, yet they're also changing. And um, I really wanted to explore the tension between those two ideas. Yeah, it's interesting. As I was reading the book, you know, I'd hear people that I was coaching, maybe say, you know, or other people that I might come across. And I was very attuned to people saying, I don't like change. Like it was like, oh boy, <laughs> there's this book you need to read. <laughs> it's very good on that. But I, I think there is that mentality. Like we, we don't like, oftentimes we don't like change. It is difficult for us to embrace change. Yet I think the people that are quick to embrace change often the most successful. I think about uh, Florida Atlantic University's men's basketball coach, Dusty May, you know, who is a phenomenal leader, uh, fortunate to have supported uh, and somewhat in his journey. And one of the things I think is most impressive about him is he has not resisted the change that have come in the NCAA. He's embraced them. He's worked with them and he's leaned into those changes. And thus they're able to take Florida Atlantic to a, a final four. And I think it's just really inspiring to see people um, that are able to embrace that change. But, you know, I guess one of my questions here is just what is it about change that gets people so adverse to it? Well, I think that a lot of this is a longstanding mindset and language we have around change, which really traces itself back to this term homeostasis, which is around 500 years old is a model since really the late 1500s, early 1600s. Uh, the term itself was coined in 1865. And homeostasis views change as a cycle of order or stability, then disorder or chaos or instability, and then getting back to order or stability. It inherently states that disorder is bad, that living organisms, of which we are one, really thrive and flourish when we have stability, and therefore, we should resist change. And if we're forced to face change, we should try to get back to order as swiftly as possible. And this has been the prevailing way to think about change for, as I said, the last couple hundred years. Only more recently have researchers stepped back and said, you know, when you look at individuals or teams or even entire organizations that excel over a long period of time, that are anti-fragile, that are resilient, they actually don't follow a homeostatic model when it comes to change. And the research community coined this term allostasis, which describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, and then reorder. So it is true. We humans and the teams and the organizations that we comprise do not like change. We prefer order. We prefer stability. But that stability is always changing and finding itself somewhere new. And the etymology of these two words really elegantly tells the story. Homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So it argues that we achieve stability by staying the same. 
Whereas allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means change or variable, and then stasis, which again means standing. So allostasis argues that we achieve stability through change. And it has this beautiful double meaning, which is that one, it's possible to be stable through change. We don't have to give up stability through the process of change. And two, the way that we stay stable through change is through change, is by changing at least to some extent. When I think about coaches and, you know, JP talked about Dusty May as a great example, but there are, there's constant change in, even in high school sports, right? You go through a season and somebody gets hurt and somebody gets sick and somebody's ineligible and, you know, your opponents change. And I, I think in the, in terms of one of the areas that I've been um, researching a lot lately is the area of just skill development and motor skill learning and things like that for athletes, right? And a lot of the research suggests that a coach's perspective should be, how do we create problem solvers rather than athletes that have the answers to all the problems? In other words, you know, a coach that says, if this, then this, if this, then this, but the coach is the source of the, the knowledge, right? Or the solution versus how do I get players out there that can be flexible when the game changes and be able to adapt? So my question for you is, you know, you're speaking to an audience of coaches here. What are the skills that we need to do a better job developing as coaches to become more flexible in our own approach to change that, that we can develop athletes that are able to do the same? Well, the first thing that I would say is really the core construct of the book, which is this term rugged flexibility. And to be rugged is to be tough, to be determined, to be durable, to really know your foundational resources and skills. And then to be flexible is to be soft, to be supple, to adapt, to bend easily without breaking. And so often we think it's either or, either you're rugged or flexible. And what I found in years of researching and reporting the book is that individuals that weather change, they're not rugged or flexible, they're rugged and flexible. So as a coach, it's important to define what are your sources of ruggedness? What are your core values around coaching? What are the hills that you're going to die on? And then beyond those key sources of ruggedness, how can you be extremely flexible and apply those sources of ruggedness in diverse circumstances and in creative ways? So you need to have those sources of ruggedness because otherwise when change occurs, when you walk out into the unknown, you have no compass. You don't know where you're going to go. But if you just have some overarching principles, they really become a source of stability that then allows you to be really flexible because you know that you can lean on those values. So what might those values be? It could be uh, around work ethic. It could be around intellect. It could be around a really artistic way to play the game or a classical way to play the game. Um, it doesn't so much matter what those values are so long as you have them. And then when the world around you changes or there's internal change on the team, you can ask yourself, well, what are those sources of ruggedness and what would it look like to now apply them in the new normal? Yeah. What did your, you know, what you're kind of talking about there? I've studied a lot about in the last year or so around these polarities or, you know, non-dualism, just, just being able to, you know, it's not one or the other, or the tyranny of the or as Jim Collins called it. And I just love that bit from the, in the book. It, it just is, is so powerful. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about coaches and these core values, right? And the, these, these things are really important to us. And I'm, I'm, I get that those things are really important, but I think so oftentimes like we're picking them from a list and, you know, 
how are mine really that different than Nate? You know, you know, at times they're not, you know, we've got similar words. Oftentimes coaches take core values from other programs. They're like, Oh, I like that. That sounds good. And we just throw it on for us. And, and so I guess I'm, I'm really curious around how do we determine those core, those rugged, uh, parts of our identity, right? Because it's really got to come back to, and you talk about the book, and this is kind of really where I want to focus a lot of our conversation today is this idea around rugged and flexible identity. How do we know, it, you know, what's core to me individually rather than just, you know, picking some words off a sheet? Well, I think that you have to start with some words on a sheet and that that's the start though, not the end. And I think a lot of people get stuck because that's the start and the end. So you've got a sheet of core values and you start to group them. And maybe you get down to three to five words that make a lot of sense to you. Um, but they can't just be words on a poster in a locker room. You've got to define them in really concrete terms. And ideally, you've got to meet with your coaching staff and your athletes and say, hey, if these are our values, how are we going to practice them? What does this look like at 6 a.m. in an early morning practice? Or what does this look like when there's a terrible officiating decision? Um, what would it look like to continue to show up in, in practice those values? If you're at a loss for what they should be to begin with, um, two inroads to finding core values. The first is to imagine yourself 20, 30, 40 years down the road. So maybe you're sitting in a really cozy leather chair, sipping on bourbon or coffee or tea, your drink of choice, and look back on current you. What would older, wiser you be proud of? And that's one really good inroads to core values. Another is to think of someone that you admire and that you look up to, and then ask yourself, what do you admire about that person? So if you admire Pete Carroll, what do you admire about Pete Carroll? If it's Steve Kerr, what do you admire about Steve Kerr? If it's Bill Belichick, what do you admire about Bill Belichick? And that's another really nice inroad to, hey, these are things that I value deeply. These are core values. And then, of course, like I said, they can't just be words on a poster. You really want to define them in concrete terms so that they can guide decision-making throughout uncertainty. Yeah, I, I think that's it's so important. I, I'm curious, then where do we go? Once I've kind of got these for myself, right? How do how, What type of work do you do with some of your clients and your coaching to help them to really, okay, we've picked off these three or four. Um, based on that, What's what are some next steps, both individually um, that we can kind of work on, on kind of maybe bringing those values more to life, understanding them, making them stronger, I guess it would, would be, I guess the word we're looking for. Yeah. And I think here's where it gets from, um, concept to practice or like knowing to doing. So, you know, your core values, how are you going to do them? You have the concept, how are you going to practice them? Uh, and here, it's really simple, right? It, it it can be as simple as asking yourself, all right, if I'm in a coaching environment, um, these are my four core values or these are my three core values. Uh, how am I going to do it? Like, If one of the core values is energy, how do I bring energy to practice? Uh, if one of the core values is integrity, how do I have difficult conversations with athletes or other members of my coaching staff? When you're in the moment and it feels like you're almost panicky because you don't know what to do because the path forward isn't clear, you can remind yourself, well, these are my core values. What would it look like to just take the next right action that is in alignment with my core values? Uh, so they really do become this rudder to steer you into the unknown. Uh, another way to think of it is if you're an athlete that knows that you can just always fall back on like a right hand dribble drive. 
And that's, that's like, that's your safety spot. The core value has kind of become that you have to have more to your game, but it's something that's always there for you to help you in challenging circumstances. And what about kind of, do they evolve over time? You know, because I think so often, like for me, like I know mine have, you know, they start in one place, but as you start to learn more about yourself, you, you they might, might change. How does that process look for a lot of, a lot of people that you work with and, and in your own life, you know, how, how have your core values changed and when, when do you know to change them? Well, they absolutely evolve over time. Um, and I think that it's still your current core values and you practicing them that leads you to your new ones. So if you think about evolution, right, the environment is constantly changing and you're in this dance with your environment. You're changing with it. You're adapting to it. But something's got to guide that dance. And for me, that's what core values are. Like they are guiding your evolution. So they're, they're, they're taking you forward down the river of growth, of becoming whatever metaphor you want to use. Uh, I like to revisit my core values once a year. I do it right around New Year's because um, it's just a natural time. I'm not big on New Year's resolutions, but I go and I say, hey, what are my values? Are they the same? How have I done practicing them? If they've changed, how have they changed? Why have they changed? Uh, people can do it more frequently. I wouldn't recommend doing it any, any less frequently. Um, and I really do, like it comes back to practice. So let's say that one of your core values is presence. And you define presence as being fully there for the people and pursuits that you care about most. And your team or your coaching staff wants to adopt that core value. All right, well, that sounds great. Everyone wants to be more present. We all want to be there for the people we care about. But what does that actually look like when the rubber meets the road? Does that mean that during every practice or every film session, coaches have to put their cell phones in a little locker so that they're not distracted by them? Uh, does that mean that there's a no cell phone policy in the gym for athletes? Uh, does that mean that there are certain key parts of practice or certain key meetings where you don't have digital devices in the building? I don't know the answers, but that's the kind of work from getting esoteric, high-minded down to what does this actually look like as a team, as a culture? Yeah, your book really inspired me. I've, 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 I've had my core values in, in my journal for, for years now, but I was definitely convicted to do more and be more intentional. I've still been decorating my office, even though I've been in this office three years. So I got uh, posters that represent my core values, you know, be curious, not judgmental, um, love from Corinthians, you know, and I've got if from Roger Kipling. I'm just kind of collecting this artwork because I want these reminders and I'm trying to bring them more to life. So I appreciate, you know, some of the, the work in the book. There's just some of the suggestions. They were really good. I want to kind of, you know, you're, you're, you're taking me right where we want to go here, I think, which is this idea of like, okay, I have my values, but how do we determine the team values and how does that maybe potentially conflict with other coaches values or other athletes values, you know, like just their identity, right? When we're thinking about that, you know, what kind of recommendations do you have for coach coaches if they have these values of, you know, let's say for mine, just, you know, curiosity, gratitude, love, right. And discipline. So you've got these these values, but I, I take over this program, let's say a local pro team here in Ireland where I'm coaching. You know, how do I then start to translate that? Um, how much is it brought on by the existing club? What's that whole process like? I wish I had a magic wand that I could wave and, and tell you. It's going to be so different, to be totally honest, based on each unique situation. Um, I will say that what doesn't change is that you as the leader of the team you can always embody that through your actions. You can make hiring and firing decisions 
very much related to what those values are. It's not going to happen overnight. But if you're patient, then the way that you shift a culture is just by embodying those values and bringing people in that are also going to embody those values and, and practice them. Um, I also think it's okay to have different personal values than an organization or team's values, so long as they're not in direct conflict. Uh, I think a great way to start off a season is a team, a coaching staff and athletes, is to have a conversation. Like we're going to experience all kinds of change and chaos and turmoil. Even the most average middle school basketball team has players get injured, has terrible officiating calls, um, has games where you don't show up and you lose and you thought you'd win and the opposite happens where you didn't think you have a chance and you end up winning. So one thing is for certain, and that is a, a sports season is going to have a lot of change and uncertainty. So then as a team, the question is, well, we can't control that, but what we can control is how we respond to those situations. And the core values, like that's going to be our guide. When we're in the heat of the moment and we want to respond thoughtfully and wisely, we've got to know what those core values are so we can quickly use them to guide our response. And no one's perfect, but then when there's failures, the conversation can be, all right, you know, I snapped on that official and I got thrown out of the game and I'm not proud of that. You know, the core values, curiosity or the core values, love or the core values, discipline. What would the more curious thing have been? What would the discipline thing have been to do in that situation? Uh, and they just are really a nice thing to constantly come back to. And over time, you do that enough, and, and they really do start to imbue the entire organization. I think that you see this in, in specific coaches that have really apparent core values. It's what Steve Kerr did with the Warriors really comes to mind. Uh, love and joy. I've never asked Steve Kerr what his core values are, but I have to imagine love and joy are on the list. And if not, then very close synonyms. Um, but it wasn't overnight that the Warriors became such a playful team. He had to build that, and that took a decade. Okay, just a quick timeout to tell you about one of my online courses that can help you get clear on your core values and how to align your behaviors with those values. My online course, Clarify Your Leadership Philosophy, is a four-module course that will help you to create a mission statement, vision statement, core values, and principles, as well as the disciplines to become that transformational leader that you want to be. You can access the course at tocculture.com. Just click on the courses link at the top. We'll also put a link in the details of this episode. Our friend of the podcast, TJ Rosine, had a great line a couple of years ago in an interview where he said, when you know who you are, you know what to do. And as you were talking right there, I was just thinking of an episode that I had Friday night at one of our games where I kind of snapped it one of our players who kept looking up in the stands at their parents and that hit a nerve for me, you know, and so I kind of barked at him for a second to, to stop the behavior and that didn't go over very well. And so, you know, I'm thinking about it overnight, you know, what exactly what you're saying, what should I have done or what could I have done differently that would have reflected our values in that moment? And the follow-up question to that is, well, now what do I do tomorrow at practice? You know, how can I walk in love to try to mend, you know, whatever was torn here in this relationship what's the step forward and so you know anyway long story short a little i apologize to the player for getting after a little bit and then we just talked through you know my perspective and her perspective and and um but it was always coming back to like what does love now look like in this mess that i have created for myself here and i think that's a great example because um no one's going to be perfect you're going to be good enough and in like the awareness and the value 
isn't necessarily preventing you from snapping on that athlete, but it's the conversation that you have with that athlete the next day. So I wouldn't counsel you to do anything differently than you did. Uh, and, and maybe you even do it in front of the whole team, depending on the dynamic and say, Hey, you know, I, I, I lost my cool. Here's why I lost my cool. Rachel, Sarah, whomever was to me seemed a little bit checked out of the game. Um, but I didn't handle it as well as I could have. And, and I'm going to make mistakes and you're all going to make mistakes. And we got to be aware of them and try to grow from them. And, and next time I'll try to do better. Uh, and that's it. You pay attention and, and you learn. And that sounds so simple, but again, so many people like go through life unaware. And I think that's where you get into patterns of just habitual behavior that maybe is easier in the moment, but doesn't reflect who you are. And I love that quote that you said around, you say it one more time, but essentially like you do who you are. And then when what you, I would say is, well, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, Nate, go ahead. When you know who you are, you know what to do. When you know who you are, you know what to do. And then I would also say, you also like who you are is what you do or you become what you do. So there's like this being doing cycle, right? That you know who you are is the being and that affects your doing, but your doing also impacts who you are. And I think in some ways it's easier to act yourself into a new sense of who you are than it is to like think or feel yourself into a new sense of, of who you are. And I'm a big skill development behaviorist so no different than everybody can want to have them. I, mean, I know you're a youth basketball coach. Everyone can want to be as good going to the right and left. And you can think about it and you can watch tape. But how do you get really good going both ways? Is you sit there with your non-dominant hand and you repetition, lots and lots of practice. And I think the core value is like, I want to be able to go left. But then the work is spending time every day going left. And then eventually going left feels natural. So it's like this being doing cycle and the more of it they're in harmony, the better we feel and, and the more that we can live our values. Yeah. I want to ask you one more question too, about these values, because I think one of the challenges for athletes and truth be told, it's probably true for coaches too, is that we can get so wrapped up in our performance, defining who we are. Right. And that can set us up for all kinds of disasters. You know, um, is there value for athletes to be able to kind of go through this same process of thinking about, What's important to me in my play, regardless of my performance? Um, and what does that conversation look like or activity look like with a coach and a player? Oh, 100%. So it's like pro the process is, did I practice in alignment with my values? Did I have a season that future me is going to be proud of? Or did I have a season that someone whom I look up to would be proud of? Uh, it's almost like your internal scoreboard. So... If you nail your internal scoreboard, you can go to sleep at night and look in the mirror and feel really good, regardless of what happens on the external scoreboard. It's not to say that you don't want to win externally and that losing externally isn't going to hurt. It is. The more you care, the more it's going to hurt. But if you also have some of those internal metrics that you can judge yourself against, uh, it provides a little bit of a buffer. And I think it's much more powerful if you can do this in a team environment with other people. Because we're social creatures, right? So if you're the only one that's like, you know, I I did have a pretty good year in terms of executing on my process, living my values, but everyone else around you is just outcome, 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 well, then it's not going to feel real. Whereas if you've got other people around you that say, yeah, you know, the chips fell where they fell, but what we can be proud of is we executed our values and where we didn't, we're going to learn. Uh, I think that that makes for a really, really good culture. Because what I don't like, and I want to be really explicit, 
is when people say, you know, outcomes don't matter. Like all the growth is in the process. Just focus on the process. Um, that's both true and not true. Like it is true that all the growth is in the process. Nobody grows on the medal stands while they're being awarded a medal. You grow in the striving for it. However, like outcomes do matter. You know, there's a reason that we keep score in the game. And, and the more elite you get, the more the outcomes matter. People's jobs, people's livelihoods are on the line in professional sport. So it's not to say that outcomes don't matter. They do, but they can't be the only thing. And I think the problem is when outcomes become the only thing or when outcomes even become the vast majority thing. So even if you're just 50-50, you know, values or process versus 50% outcomes, that's fine. I think the problem is when you get to like 90-10, and we know because there's research, what happens when you get to 90-10 is you're more likely to engage in unethical behavior. So in sport, that might look like abusing performance-enhancing drugs or cheating. Um, and, and, and that often happens when you get so attached to the outcomes and your whole identity is attached to the outcomes. And then, well, if your identity is under threat, you're going to do anything to try to defend yourself. Whereas if you can identify with some of these more deeply held core values, then that's a buffer against like obsessiveness in, in getting so locked into outcomes that you make bad decisions. Yeah. I think so often this is the the struggle. I've even had some conversations with some coaches post game, their frustration, you know, themselves, like their own reaction to a loss could be really, really extreme. And they know it's really unhealthy, super attached to the outcomes, but at the same time, we don't want no response. So we don't want to not care at all. And the same for our players. Like, I think it drives coaches crazy when players don't seem bothered by a loss. Same time, we don't want the player just completely devastated and 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 completely, you know, uh, as as what Andy Duke calls, you know, tilt, you know, gone on tilt mode there. So um, I think what you're saying really speaks to that. Yeah, I, I, and that's it's again, it's like non-dual. It's not either or. It's both and. So outcomes matter, and they're not the only thing, and they probably shouldn't be the majority thing all the time. And then I think it goes both ways because we're talking about bad outcomes, but I'd argue that good outcomes are, are every bit as risky uh, for two reasons. The first and the most talked about is you get complacent. So you win a championship or you're named MVP and what have you. And then, all right, like, well, I did what I needed to do and I, I can start to take my foot off the gas. Uh, less talked about is that you win the thing and then you wake up the next day and you still feel kind of empty. Because you thought that by winning, it was going to change you as a person, or it was going to somehow make your life so much better. And that is a real source of a lot of psychological discombobulation in all kinds of people, not just athletes. In the literature, it's called the arrival fallacy. We think that if we just arrive, if we just win that championship, if I just marry this person, if I just get that coaching role, uh, then I'll be happy. And then we get the thing and it doesn't really change. And then that can be a really confusing time. Ray Allen, um, after he won his first championship with Boston, he talked about how the morning after his championship was one of the most confusing mornings of his life because he thought that somehow this was going to make everything okay, and it didn't. And I think that's another risk of getting so attached to outcomes. So there, the way that I like to prepare myself and individuals I work with is just knowing up front, like nothing is going to validate you. And that's okay. Like you got to find joy and meaning and relationships in the striving and in the process because you're not going to find it by winning the thing. You can still want to win the thing, but if you think that winning the thing is going to fulfill you, you're wrong. 
So hopefully more days than that, you feel fulfilled in the craft and in the work of striving for that. Yeah. And I think the other um, benefit of those conversations is that you can start to, especially in work with teenagers, start to get them to recognize what's within your control and what isn't, you know, and when we, no matter how much we prepare or how much we want to win, there's always what the other team is doing, right. In terms of, you know, the competition on the field and that we don't control, we don't control the officials and we can get on the line. But sometimes when players are so focused on the outcome, um, then it's hard for them to see through that, where I think when we start talking about values and the things that are important to you, you, you have a chance to now center yourself around things that are under your control. That's right. And this you can do at any age. And that's what I love about it. So I've got a six-year-old who is just loves basketball and who knows how long that'll be the case. But for now, it's the case. And when we play outside, um, I'm really careful not to let him win every game but to always make the games close. And sometimes when I beat him and he gets really frustrated, I'll ask him, I'll say, Hey, Theo, what would have happened if dad's shot would have bounced off the rim and then you would have got the rebound and scored? And he said, I would have won. I said, yeah, that's it. And that's just luck. Like if dad's shot went in or out, I, I don't know. Little does he know I'm making a layup on a six foot hoop, but like to him, it's just luck. And um, whether or not my ball hits the rim and goes in or out, like that, that doesn't make it a good game or not. And now you ladder that all the way up to an elite athlete. And the conversation is around, hey, did you live your values? Do you have a performance that your family is going to be proud of? Whatever those values are. And again, it's not going to take away the hurt of losing something that you really wanted to win, but it will make sure that it's not the only thing. Another way to think of it, and, and this is maybe a little bit too uh, like esoteric, but I, I forgot who I heard this from recently and I really liked it, that... If you care deeply about something and you don't get it, and that's the only thing, you've got like all this pain that comes with not getting it, and it's in a very small container, that pain. It's like trapped. Whereas if you care deeply about something and you don't get it, but you've got core values, that's like the holding container. So it's the same amount of pain, but there's more space around it. So it's not as hard. And, and I just think that's like really true. Yeah, a couple things. Just one that I really appreciate it's got me thinking about is just with the, the beauty of values, even just sharing my values um, with my team. I was just spending time with USA women's field hockey a couple of weeks ago, and they've got a couple of values of joy and intensity, but you know, we were really working with the players for each of them to talk about what intensity would look like in that upcoming test match against New Zealand. You know, it was just an opportunity for them to share and to express to each other. And I think, um, I think it was, I forget who it was, the um, author of Belonging. Owen Eastwood, I, he has a great line in, in Belonging where he talks about, you know, as coaches, we can sketch the identity but allow the players to color it in. I feel like values are broad enough that the players are able to bring their own personality to it. I don't know if that resonates with you as well. Yeah, it does. Um, and, and that gets back to like defining the value, you know? So maybe the team mm -hmm. value is joy, but what that's going to look like for different players is, is, is slightly different. Uh, and when everything's clicking, I mean, you get jazz music, right? Like everyone's kind of on the same page enough, has those underlying values, but then is, is playing in, in slightly different ways and it comes together to create this beautiful thing. All right, we're going to break here in our conversation with Brad in reflection on part one of our conversation. What I appreciated the most was how he gave us really practical ways to go beyond just picking a few core values off a sheet of paper and plastering them on a wall. 
In our next episode, part two of our conversation with Brad, we'll be talking about how important it is to develop a fluid sense of self and how it's important to rethink how much our coaching personality and style really are, how important those are. In the meantime, be sure to check out Brad's book, The Master of Change, and his newsletter, The Growth Equation. Uh, You can also go to his website, bradstolberg.com. Also, please be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave us a review. You can also learn more about our work at tocculture.com.